when I was reading uh, over this passage and reading other passages that this passage refers to in commentaries, one of, one of the things that a lot of pastors and scholars comment on when they talk about this passage, and especially Paul's prayer, is, is kind of how surprising Paul's prayer request is in this passage. The, the, the overall theme of Paul's prayer is that the Ephesians would grow in their knowledge of God. Uh, but if you read the rest of the New Testament, and especially in the book of Acts, where, where you kind of learn about the locations of, of a lot of Paul's letters, uh, if you read Acts 19, uh, it kind of outlines Paul's visit to this place called Ephesus. And uh, w- when Paul went there, um, he preached the gospel and many people were converted and he went back to visit in Acts 19. And it turns out that people said, no, 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 don't come and visit. It is not safe for you to visit Ephesus right now. Uh, what had happened in Ephesus is that uh, people had come to know and trust Jesus. And all of this was happening in, in the midst of a town uh, that was predominantly idol worshiping. And, and so what had happened was the people that, who made, the craftsmen and the artisans who made these idols and were selling them to people to worship began losing a lot of business and they organized a huge protest in the middle of the town and ended up in the town theater and they chanted and rioted against Christianity and against Paul's followers so much so that they said it is not safe for you to come here. And yet when Paul moves on and he writes to these people, uh, he's writing to a people uh, who might be in danger like he himself would have been. Uh, if, if they're believers, they're likely experiencing some sort of hardship on account of trusting Jesus. Uh, they may have experienced division in their family. They may have been neighbors with one of the craftsmen uh, who made these idols. Uh, they may be experiencing job loss. Uh, they may actually be fearing uh, for their health or their livelihood. They may feel like they're in danger And Paul writes to them and he starts off this prayer and he doesn't say, I'm praying for you in the midst of feeling insecure. I'm praying for you in the midst of your danger or in the midst of feeling isolated from family or friends on account of believing and trusting in Jesus. Um, I'm praying that the government would be more favorable to you. No, he begins his prayer to a people who are in danger and he says, I'm praying that you would know God, that you have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you might grow in the knowledge of him. And that sounds surprising when you consider the circumstances of the Ephesians. And yet this is a theme throughout Paul's letters. Uh, This was actually Jesus' prayer request right before he went to the cross. John 17, Jesus is praying to his father and he says, And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Paul in Colossians 1.9 and, and Philippians 1.9 essentially prays the same thing. He says, my prayer is that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Colossians 1.9, we do not cease to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Why all this ink spilled on knowing God. Why does Paul spend so much time? Why is this such a priority? Why is this one of Jesus' last prayer requests that we would know God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent? 
J.I. Packer kind of t- he gives this illustration of, of imagine taking someone who, who grows up in a, uh, he gives the illustration of someone who grows up in the Amazon, completely isolated from all cultural and technological advances. They grow up with no running water, no electricity, uh, no foreign language skills. And imagine taking someone who grew up like that and planting them in the middle of London, no technology, uh, no Merriam-Webster dictionary, um, no, no, no clues as to who's in charge or what they should do and just planting them there and leaving them. And he comments that and he says, we similarly would be cruel to ourselves to try and live in this world without knowing the God whose world it is and runs it. He said the world becomes a strange, mad, and painful place and life in it becomes a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. When we disregard knowing God, we essentially sentence ourselves to stumble through life with no sense of security or direction. And it's important to, 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 and you see this in verse 18, but it's important to pick up that what Paul is talking about is not merely knowing God in a way of amassing information or increasing uh, the amount that we know about God. But if you look at verse 18, he talks about it's a knowledge that's connected to our heart. Verse 18, that we grow in the knowledge of him and having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Uh, This is not just uh, an intellectual exercise that Paul is praying that we would undergo, but he's praying that our hearts would be changed. And in Jewish culture, the the, the heart was not just the seat of emotions, but, but it was actually the control center of our will and our desires. Uh, Paul is praying that we would know God in such a way that it would actually affect our will and what we long for and what we desire. Paul is praying that our lives would be changed. We see this prayer request throughout his letters. It's one of Jesus' last prayers that we would know God more and more. And so as you see how important it is that we know God, you can also see how destructive it is when we don't know him or we neglect knowing him. And that's why so many of our struggles, so many of our problems can actually be traced back to a deficient knowledge of God. Some of you this morning are here and, and, and maybe even this morning you've wondered what your purpose is or why you even exist. And the invitation of this prayer is that you would know God. That you would know who God is. That he is a God who is righteous and holy. He's created you. He has dignity. And he's not only created you, but he's created you in his image. uh, That that you mark his stamp. That that, that you have his stamp. You bear his image. You reflect his dignity, his righteousness, and his beauty. You are not an accident, but that you reflect the God who created the heavens and the earth. Or, Or maybe you're here struggling this morning, nervous. Maybe you find yourself nervous and constantly worrying about what is next. Maybe it's next week. uh, Or maybe it's investments you made earlier this year. And Paul here is praying that we would know the God 
who does clothe the flowers of the field and he cares for the birds of the air, how much more will he care for his children, for those whom he's created in his image? Or maybe you're here this morning and you really struggle to forgive. You find yourself constantly bitter at others or maybe someone in particular this morning. The invitation is to know God, to know that he is a God who is just. It is not our job to inflict and continue the suffering of someone who's wronged us, uh, but to know God, to know his justice, to know his forgiveness towards us. And, and, and what, what Paul does not promise and what scripture does not promise is it's not that as we know this God that everything turns out well and that life all of a sudden is easy, but, but as you get to know the God of the Bible, as you read his word, as you spend time with his people, uh, what you will realize, especially when things go wrong, is that we have a God who we may not completely understand or completely comprehend, uh, but we do have a God that we know we can trust. As you get to know this God, you will see Maybe not that you can figure out everything that he's up to, uh, but you will know that he is trustworthy. For two summers in college, I I worked at a camp uh, in in Georgia. It was a summer camp, and it was, uh, you know, in the months of June and July. And if you've ever been to Canacook or Sharp Top or any camp that is really nice... Erase those images from your head. And uh, the camp I worked at was a, they were week-long sessions, so a lot of the kids repeated sessions, and there was not a whole lot to do, to be honest. None of the cabins had air conditioning, um, and so really the highlight of the pool, the highlight of the camp was not the lake that was too gross to swim in, it was this pool uh, that was not that great. Uh, It was surrounded by a chain-link fence, Uh, it was dated, it had a broken diving board and a functioning water slide. And... um, that was the thing the kids looked forward to most, especially when they arrived on a Sunday afternoon uh, and, and on this particular Sunday afternoon in July. Um, the, the pattern was basically parents would drop them off, they'd go straight to the cabin, and they usually came in their bathing suits and they would go straight to the pool. And, uh, but the weekend before that session, uh, we had a huge thunderstorm and lightning had struck the pool house and the guy who was kind of overseeing the facilities that week was not the typical, he wasn't the usual pool guy and he didn't know what to do and he saw the water changing and so he just decided to pour more chlorine and more chemicals in, into the pool because it was beginning to look, have a film over it. And so um, filter wasn't working, nothing was really, the water was not cycling through. And so even these chemicals in it that actually... The pool looked amazing. The water looked like bluer than it had ever looked. But when... <laughs> The pool guy came, he said, um, this, this is not safe to swim in. The kids actually can't swim in here today, tomorrow, like maybe by the middle of the week, they'll be able to swim in here. And it was my job uh, to tell my welcome, you know, I was, I was in the cabin area welcoming the campers who were all sprinting to the cabins. So they could drop their stuff off so that they could sprint to the pool. And I had to break the news to them that, like, you can't go there. You actually have to stay. And I know it's 95 degrees, and I know it's 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and I know these cabins don't have air conditioning, but you can't go to the pool. Even though you just ran by it and it looked amazing, it is closed. And some of these kids had known me before from previous sessions. Some of them did not. But the look on their face was kind of like, what are you doing 
to us? Why would you not let us do that? And explaining pool chemicals to, you know, second and third graders doesn't really go very far. Uh, But I had to explain to them, look, you don't understand this, but I'm not doing this because I want to ruin your fun. I'm doing this because we care about you. We don't want you to get some sort of skin fungus or disease. Uh, We really are not letting you swim because we love you and we care about you. When you read through the Bible and when you show up to worship, what you begin to see as you get to know this God and you know this people uh, is not that you will always understand God, but that we have a God who is in the business of bringing light out of darkness. You know, Jesus' followers acted with similar dismay when he went to the cross. They over and over thought again, this is going to be the one, this is the Messiah. He's going to deliver us. And they all had different ideas of what that deliverance looked like. But on Calvary, all of those hopes were dashed. And yet, God in that moment was doing the very thing he needed to accomplish and the very thing we needed to accomplish. The very thing we celebrate was actually in the darkest moment of history. We believe and trust and worship a God who's in the business of bringing light out of darkness. And so Paul prays that we would know this God. But he prays that we would actually not just know him in general, but in this passage he prays we would know certain things about him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul prays here that one of the things he wants the Ephesians, he wants us to know is that God has an inheritance. There's other places in scripture where it talks about us receiving an inheritance, us being co-heirs with Jesus. Here, Paul is praying that we would know about God's inheritance, that God has an inheritance and that it is the saints. It is his people. It is his sheep. And this is not a New Testament concept. It's also in the passage uh, we read from the Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy four twenty. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance. He has redeemed us in order that we might be his inheritance an inheritance is something oh gosh back then we look forward to inheritances now back then it included often much more land people yes money uh and and it was it was a family's treasured possession and paul is praying that we would know that god has a treasured possession and it is the saints It is you and me. I don't know what Malibu Jacks has done in their marketing to create such an enthralling place for children, but my kids have this almost unhealthy uh, adoration of Malibu Jacks. They went to a birthday party there and they came back, and I I don't think they think there's anywhere better in the world than Malibu Jacks. And it's really not so much because of what goes on there it's usually because you get the tokens what they look forward to most is cashing in those tokens and getting those prizes the most expensive of which probably cost 
uh, 35 cents to manufacture, but uh, they will cash in thousands of tokens, or in my, in my kid's case, usually like dozens of, uh, uh, of tickets uh, to get, and it can be something as small as a bouncy ball, um, but when they get home, well, whatever it is, an army man with a parachute, a bouncy ball, a tattoo, that th- they are not releasing that thing out of their fist. Uh, it stays with them. It'll sometimes make it to their bed. They're certainly not sharing it with their sibling. That's their treasure. They're not letting it go. Paul is saying in this passage that God has a treasured possession. He has an inheritance, and he wants us to know that, that God's inheritance is the saints. It's his people. For those of you who trust Jesus, God looks upon you as his treasure. He delights in you. And Paul prays that we would know that. Gosh, I wonder why Paul would pray that we would know that. Probably because a lot of times we don't think that's the way God relates to us. We have have all sorts of different images of how God might relate to us. But here Paul is praying that we would know that regardless of what our family situation has done to us, Regardless of what's happened in your job this past year, uh, regardless of how 2019 has gone so far, whether it's exceeded your expectations or whether the things that you dreaded the most have happened, God delights in you and he treasures you. And Paul prays that we would know that. And then in verse 19 and 20, Paul goes on to more things that he wants us to know. Verse 19, he does not only want us to know that we have a hope and that, 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 that God has a glorious inheritance in the saints, but verse 19, he prays that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Uh, Some astonishing remarks here are made about the Christian life. Last week, we celebrated and bathed in the glory of the resurrection that Jesus Christ defeated the power of death. The one thing this world cannot overcome and cannot avoid, though we are trying so hard, is death. We can fix a lot of diseases. We can cure a lot of things. We have not found out a way to even come close to defeating death. And we celebrated the fact that Jesus has defeated the power of sin and death last week. And what Paul here is praying that we would know is that that same power that was at work when God raised Jesus from the dead, that same power is at work in those who believe in Jesus. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power in which believers live. And so to celebrate the resurrection is also to live in the resurrection. We live in the assurance that Christ has been raised from the dead and that power also lives in us. That is good news for so many 
reasons. But, but one thing in particular that means is that there is real and true hope in your struggle with sin. There have been moments this week where you've probably prayed, Lord, is there any hope for me? Can I ever overcome my greed? Lord, I'm controlled by the opinions of others. Or will you free me from lust? Will you free me from jealousy? And there are times in the Christian life where it seems as if these sins are unconquerable. That they are too great an enemy for us. And Paul here is actually acknowledging that, that there are. That there are probably some things in this life that you cannot overcome on your own. And that's why he's not praying here that we would know our power. But that we would know his power. Christ's power which is in us. So that when we see our insufficiency and our poverty, that we would look to Christ and his sufficiency and his riches. And that when we see our weakness, look to his power and celebrate his power. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're not a believer, I think it is It's worth your while to ask yourself, what is your hope for change? What are you relying on to change? And not just changing your habits, but what are you relying on to change those things about you that you've tried to change and you haven't been able to? What is your hope for changing those things, those desires that you have that you wish you didn't have? Or what is your hope for gaining desires that you wished you had, but you don't have? Paul here is saying there is real hope for the Christian. Not just mere hope for change in our habits or our friend groups or our circumstances, but that the eyes of our hearts actually can be changed. That our wills and desires can be transformed by the gospel. The power to be who God has called you to be is in Jesus. And the believer, the good news is, is that Jesus is in you. That power is in Christ and Christ is in us. And so Paul has prayed. He's prayed that we would know God, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would know that God has an inheritance That we would know the power that is at work in us as we fight sin. And lastly, he prays that we would know his rule. That we would know that Christ reigns. If you look at verses 21 through 23, Paul goes into all this detail describing the fact that Christ is reigning. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. If you read the beginning of chapter 1, you'll see in verses 9 and 10, Paul talks about this mystery being revealed. That God has this plan to put everything under, back under the headship 
of Christ. And Paul here is praying that we would know that God has done that and he is doing that. And then that one day we will see that victory in full. He spills all this ink describing Christ's reign because he's reminding us that we have a God who keeps his promises. God's plan is to put everything back under the headship of Jesus. And Paul here is praying that we would know that right now, Jesus has not just been resurrected from the dead. He defeated death, but he also ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. And he is ruling and he is reigning. We have a God that we can trust. We have a God who is keeping his promises that there would never be a day when a king does not sit on the throne. But that truth also gives us real hope. It actually allows us to live in hope because what that means is is that if Christ is reigning now, he's already defeated sin and death. There is nothing standing in his way to return to make all things new and to wipe away every tear and to undo every act of injustice and unrighteousness. Christ is reigning, which means he's calling the shots and he will return. That is true and actual hope in which we can live. That's the invitation of the resurrection to celebrate it and to live in it because that power and that truth lives in us. Let me pray for us. Father, oh Lord, we thank you uh, that the resurrection is true. We thank you, oh Lord, that you are good and that you keep your promises. Father, it's our prayer now Uh, that we would know that, that we would remember that. Father, we are prone uh, to forget. We are prone to wander. Lord, wake us up. uh, Enlighten our hearts for the hundredth time or for the first time. We ask all of this with hope because Christ reigns. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.